0: All right, well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you here. Why don't we start with a word of prayer, and we'll get right into our study on the book of Hebrews. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Sabbath day. We pray that you would bless us as we start this new study on the book of Hebrews. May we learn things that will be helpful for us on our journey to heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) All right, well, it's good to see each one of you here, and I always enjoy starting a new class, and I'm particularly excited about studying the book of Hebrews together up here. This is a powerful book in the New Testament, and we're going to talk about the reasons for it being written, and what the purpose for the book is. Uh, Personally, I have found it to be a very helpful book in the understanding of Seventh-day Adventist theology. Just for starters, you know, the book of Hebrews is... An interesting book in that it starts off immediately with a theological exposition. It doesn't start off with the author saying, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ to the Hebrews in Jerusalem um, or anything of that nature. It just starts off directly with a theological introduction. There's very few books in the Bible that are actually like that. We think of the book of John. We think, think of the book of Genesis Um, Hebrews is also like that. Also, when it comes to the authorship of the book of Hebrews, modern scholars have a big debate over who actually wrote the book. Um, If you look at the setting for the book, it was written in 66 AD, which was written four years before the fall of Jerusalem. And so... For those who say that it was written after the fall of Jerusalem, it would be kind of hard to... um, For those who say it was written in the first century and that it wasn't Paul, it would be hard to argue that because this book was written while the city of Jerusalem was still standing. And so that at least keeps Paul on the running from that standpoint. The other thing is people say, well, Paul in his other epistles, the way he wrote is different than the way he writes, or whoever is writing Hebrews writes. In the other epistles, Paul kind of loosely quotes the Old Testament, if he quotes the Old Testament, but in the book of Hebrews, the Old Testament is being quoted word for word, so therefore it can't be Paul. Well, let's think about the setting of Paul when he wrote those other epistles, he would sometimes write a short letter to the Galatians or the Ephesians while he was on a ship somewhere and he hastily wrote off a letter. The book of Hebrews, Paul would have written it from a prison cell where he would have had all the time in the world to make sure that he got everything exactly right word for word. So that keeps Paul in the running as well. And Or a couple of other points in Hebrews 10, Paul or the author makes the point that the just shall live by faith. Paul makes that very same point in Romans 1, so we see some similarities there. And finally, last but not least, Ellen White says that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. Now, in my particular Bible, it says the Epistle of Paul, the Apostle to the Hebrews. So, this is an Oxford King James Version Bible. So the people who compiled the King James Version also thought that Paul was, was the author of Hebrews. So so that's that particular point. Now, we believe that the the book of Hebrew, Hebrews was written in 66 AD. Now, what is the significance, um, or around 66 AD, I don't want to be totally hard and fast on that date. What is the significance of that time period for the Hebrew people that claim to be Christians? Now, if you read the book of Hebrews, you can see that Paul is writing this book with the understanding that his readers are are Hebrew, they're Jewish, and they also believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So they're Jewish Christians. That's his intended target audience. So what would the significance then be of this book being written in 66 AD or around that time period? Well, if you think about history, four years later, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed by the Roman army. So what about the epistle of Hebrews would be important to the Jewish Christians living in the city of Jerusalem. If you remember, Jesus in the book of Matthew tells his followers that when you see the abomination of desolation with the Roman armies surrounding the city, flee the city at that point. The problem with the, Jew, the Jewish Christians, however, was even though Jesus said that shortly before he died in 31 AD, by the 60s, over 30 years later, the, Jews had, the Jewish Christians had not yet built their own tabernacle for worship. They still worshipped in the temple. They still um, participated in the Jewish ceremonies And they still kept all the rites and ceremonies. And even though the Jerusalem Council had taken place in Acts chapter 15 where Paul comes back from his journeys to the Gentiles and says, look how God is blessing and we aren't circumcising the Gentiles and God's blessing us anyway and the Holy Spirit is being poured out on the Gentiles just as it has been on us. So clearly circumcision shouldn't be a determining factor on salvation and all of that. At the Jerusalem Council, if you read Acts chapter 15, the Jewish leaders said, fine, fine. The Gentile Christians don't need to participate in the Jewish ceremonies. However, just a few things. Don't eat food offered to idols. Don't eat things that are strangled and things like that. Um, But when it came to the Jews, the Jews basically said, hey, we're going to keep doing this. This is what we're used to doing, and we think this is a perfectly good thing to do. And after the, the Jerusalem Council, years later... Paul comes back to Jerusalem, and the issue comes up again where the Jews are saying, "Hey Paul, um, you're telling the Gentiles that they don't have to have to keep the law, meaning the ceremonial law um, are, are you telling people that the law of Moses isn't important? you know the Jews are starting to question you the Jewish Christians and and we're worried about this you're losing your influence with the Jewish Christians. And so Paul, in order to try to gain the favor of the Jewish Christians, you can read about this in Acts 21, Paul takes a vow where he purifies himself and goes to the temple and shaves his head. It was a Jewish Ceremony. The ironic thing is, Paul is going around teaching the Gentiles, you don't have to do these purification things that the Jews do anymore because when Christ died on the cross, those things are no longer binding. Yes, the Ten Commandments are still binding, but all those Jewish ceremonies you don't have to do anymore. But then Paul comes to Jerusalem, and in order to try to keep the influence of the Jews, he goes through this vow, shaves himself, and what happens? He gets recognized immediately by the non-Christian Jews in the temple. He gets arrested, and he is a prisoner the remainder of his life. And Ellen White tells us that the effectiveness of his ministry was cut short because of that decision. So think about Paul now. Paul has the rest of his life as a prisoner to think about how him bowing to the pressure of the Jewish Christians to try to show them, hey, I'm still part of the team here. Even though he's preaching that you don't have to do these ceremonies, how that cut short his ministry. So, Paul had a vested interest then in trying to help the Jewish Christians not make the same mistake that he made that cut short the effectiveness of his ministry. And Paul of all of the apostles, you might argue, was perhaps the most theologically astute. Not to minimize Peter or John or the others, I mean John wrote Revelation and so forth. But Paul had an outstanding knowledge of the Old Testament. And Paul knew that according to the words of Christ, the city of Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. That was clear in Matthew chapter 24. Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. And what would happen to all of these Jewish Christians who still thought that the temple was the centerpiece of their worship? If if you're a Jewish Christian, you've accepted Christ as your Savior, He's the Messiah, but yet you believe that the center of worship still revolves around the temple in Jerusalem— if Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed, and that's where you are placing you know, the center of your worship, you're going to have some serious issues when Jerusalem is destroyed. And so Paul understood that there was a great danger for the Jewish Christians. So just a few years, three to four, five years before Jerusalem is destroyed, the book of Hebrews arrives on the scene. Now, do we know if this book was effective? It was. How do we know? First of all, we are told by historians and also by Ellen White that not one Jewish Christian lost their life in the siege of Jerusalem. Number two, you could say, oh, well, that's fine. They followed the words of Christ. And he said, when you see the city surrounded, get out of there. So, but, you know, how do we know Hebrews was effective? Well, consider this. The Jewish Christians were so adamant about continuing to observe the ceremonial law, that they basically convinced Paul to do a vow that ended up getting him arrested and taken to prison. And you would think that if they were still that adamant after they left the city, as the Jewish Christians dispersed into the other cities around the world, as they did, and they started to worship with other Christians, which would be Gentile Christians, if they thought that the ceremonial law was so important, don't you think they would have tried to have imposed that system on the other Christians around the world? They would have if they still believed it was important. But there is no record of them doing so. Which tells us that whatever Paul said in the book of Hebrews Convince the Jewish Christians that, hey, this ceremonial law that we were continuing to do has no force now because of what Christ did. So it was a very effective book. And we're going to study some of the things that Paul teaches that convinced the Jewish Christians of that time that they no longer needed to enforce the ceremonial system. And you, and, and you, you would have to think that the Jewish Christians who loved Paul and then they saw how his ministry was cut short, how that a book like this would have a lot more force as he's writing them, and he's basically saying, hey, look what happened to me. See what happened to me? You don't want this to happen to you. Here's what we really should be focusing on. So it was effective. Now, was the book of Hebrews written exclusively and only for the Jewish Hebrews of that time to help them escape Jerusalem when the Roman armies surrounded the city? And the short answer to that is no. How do I know that? Well, in Matthew chapter 24, the words of Christ were intended to save the Jews from the destruction of Jerusalem. However, is Matthew chapter 24 only for the Jewish Christians, to help save them from the destruction of Jerusalem. No, it's also for God's last day people to help us to be ready for the second coming of Christ. And it's interesting, the way Paul writes the book of Hebrews, it has the same type of application. You see this in verses 1 and 2, where he says, God at sundry times spake, <laughs> in times past, I'm paraphrasing here, through the, under the fathers by the prophets, in verse 2, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. And what's interesting is he says, in these last days, in Matthew chapter 24, Christ does not distinguish the last days from the destruction of Jerusalem and the second coming. And so Paul is basically saying, these last days applies to the destruction of Jerusalem, but as with the words of Christ, it applies to the end of the world. If Christ can make that application, Paul can too. I mean, Christ is God, and Paul, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, makes the same application. So, the book of Hebrews is not just for the Jewish Christians, although it certainly had a huge emphasis on being applied in that way but it's also for god's last day people now let me see how we're doing on time here we're doing okay so far so that's sort of a basic introduction to the need of the book of hebrews now what's interesting then is if you look at the theme of the book of hebrews just running quickly through the chapters here um, and I, i think it's good to lay a foundation for kind of where we're headed. Chapter 1 of the book of Hebrews proves, among many other things, but primarily, that Jesus is God. And in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8, the Father speaking to the Son says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. So if someone tries to tell you, well, Jesus was a good man, but he wasn't divine, well, the Father himself calls Jesus God. So Hebrews 1 verse 8 is one of the best verses we have to show that Jesus is God. And in Hebrews chapter 2, the primary point is that Jesus was truly man. And in verse 14, Paul makes it very clear, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, speaking of Christ, he also himself likewise took part of the same. So I don't know how many more ways you can say that Jesus was a man. He also himself likewise took part of the same. And at the end of the chapter, the concept of Christ as our high priest comes in. And in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. So because Jesus was God, because Jesus is a man, that qualifies him to be our high priest. Now to the Jews, they should take note, because they um, followed the earthly high priests in the temple. And now Paul is saying, hey, Jesus is our heavenly high priest. And then he goes on to say, By the way, um, I'm speaking to you Jews um, here in chapter 3. Remember how your fathers hardened their hearts in the wilderness and refused to believe God, and so they died in the wilderness? Um, Make sure you don't do the same thing with this message that I'm giving to you. And then he goes on to chapter 4 and says... um, what not the the thing not to do is is what your fathers did. But here's what to do: enter into God's rest. How to enter into God's rest <clears throat> on the seventh day Sabbath? So the Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, uplifts the seventh day Sabbath and says this is the place to find rest in Christ. Well, what does that mean? We'll we'll study that as we go through the book, and then <clears throat> in Hebrews. 5, 6, and 7. I'm just going to hit some high points here. Christ, er, Christ is shown to be high priest. And he's contrasted with the earthly priest in the Jewish system. And he's shown to be after the priesthood of the order of Melchizedek, which shows that he is a better priest than the earthly priest. So what Paul is saying is, is hey, if you're following these earthly priests, you're following the wrong priest. The priest to follow is Jesus Christ. And then, in chapter 8, verse 1, he says, I've done the first seven chapters, written these to prove that Christ is our high priest who is set at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, which we know is the sanctuary. And he goes on to show that the new covenant is a better covenant than the old covenant. And the new covenant is that God will write his law into our hearts and minds. And then in chapter 9, he shows... That there was a sanctuary here on earth, but now Christ is in the sanctuary in heaven, and that is a better sanctuary than the sanctuary on earth. It's better than the temple in Jerusalem. So don't go to the temple in Jerusalem to find Christ. Go to the sanctuary in heaven to find him. That's where our high priest is. And some people say, well, Hebrews 9 proves that Christ went into the most holy place when he ascended, no, it doesn't. Um, the word tahagia throughout chapter 9 means holy places, which means holy place and most holy place. And in nine, chapter 9, verse 3, specifically the most holy place is described where it talks about after the second veil, which implies there would be a first veil as well. So if Christ has entered into the veil, it could be the first veil or, or the second veil. And after the second veil is the most holy place. The The word he uses here is Hagia, Hagion, which means most holy place. Everywhere else, he says tahagia, which means holy places. So don't let some scholar or theologian tell you that Hebrews proves that Christ went to the most holy place. No, it doesn't. Not at, not at his ascension. And then Hebrews 10, we hear some more about the new covenant. We'll get there. We hear about the just living by faith. Hebrews 11 shows that here are people that have lived by faith down through the centuries, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament. But at the very end of Hebrews 11, we we see that God has provided something better for his last day people. And then in Hebrews 12, we see a description of how to become part of the 144,000, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, running the race with patience that is set before us, which is this description of God's people in the 144,000. Continuing on in chapter 12, um, we see that Paul is saying, look, this race leads us, in verse 22, to Mount Zion. That's where the 144,000 end up. To the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, which is not the earthly Jerusalem. And then he goes on in chapter 13, and he says, starting in verse 12, Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate, let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach, for here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. So notice how Paul ends this book. He's like, look, Jesus died outside the city of Jerusalem. And if we're going to find him, we need to go outside the city of Jerusalem as well. Because here on this earth, we have no continuing city. That means Jerusalem is not the place to find Christ. If we're going to find Christ... We need to come out of the city of Jerusalem to where he died on the cross, and that's where we will find him. And the Jews who took that message to heart were not lost when the city of Jerusalem was destroyed. Now, here's an interesting application. Certainly not, I wouldn't call it the primary application of the book of Hebrews by any means. It's interesting that just before, now as we've seen, Paul says, in these last days, God is sending us a message. Matthew 24 is about the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the world. And so the message for God's people in these last days before the destruction of Jerusalem was come out of the city of Jerusalem. It's interesting, in the last days before Jesus comes, there's also a message to come out of another city. And again, this isn't the primary application, but it's an application you can make. That as the gospel goes to the world, as Jesus says it will in Matthew 24, that part of that message is to call God's people out of Babylon. And those people who come out of Babylon, they recognize the words of Christ about the abomination of desolation and um, as modern-day Rome takes actions that endanger God's people again, God's people will come out of Babylon. And um, Anyway, that, that's just an application that we can make. And how do we do that? We, we find Christ in the sanctuary as our high priest. So, the book of Hebrews, if you wanted to sum it up theologically <clears throat> into a theme... Christ fulfilled the ceremonial law by His life and His death and we find salvation completely through Jesus Christ through His death on the cross and His ministry in the sanctuary in heaven now. So we do not find Christ In the old ceremonies, that's not where to find Christ anymore. The place to find Christ now is in the sanctuary in heaven. So that's sort of an introduction to the book of Hebrews, and we might be able to actually do chapter 1 now, in the remaining 15 minutes, there's 14 verses. So we're going to start with Hebrews chapter 1, and um, now that we're back to a, a book of the Bible study, we're going to... This will be a little bit more interactive than our history class was. So is there a volunteer to read Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3? We have a microphone. Um, Could I have a volunteer to have someone read Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3? 1 through 3, right? 3? Yeah. God... Who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in the past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed their heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and subholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. You know, these first three verses, basically, if you unpack it, um, unpack the entire theology of the entire book of Hebrews. This describes who Jesus is and what he's doing. And it's the message of the book of Hebrews. So, notice how it starts off. God in the past spake to us by the prophets but now he's speaking to us through his son. now the first point to make here for modern day Christians who say we are new covenant Christians and the Old Testament doesn't matter anymore um, Paul is basically saying, look God spoke in the Old Testament. So don't diminish his word in the Old Testament. To further prove that point, if you read the book of Hebrews, Paul quotes from the Old Testament word for word in multiple places. So he uses the Old Testament to prove his new covenant point. So the Old Testament certainly has a prominent place in the word of God, even in the New Testament. So God spoke through the Old Testament in the past, but now in these last days, think about this. The message for the last days is so important that God spoke to us directly through His Son. With respect to the fall of Jerusalem, it's the words of Christ that keep us from being deceived and that save us. With respect to the second coming, it's the words of Christ directly that God speaks through us to help save us to be ready for His second coming. And God so wants us to be saved that He didn't entrust the last day message primarily to anyone else besides His Son. And so, in these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son, whom He hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the world. Now when we think of of Christ as the heir, can we think of a place in the Bible that that? speaks of Christ as the heir with respect to the Jewish people. In Matthew chapter 21, we have the familiar parable. I'll just make reference to it. But you have the the parable of the vineyard. And the husbandman sends servant after servant. And each of the servants... um, is accosted by the, the people who are supposed to be tending it. And finally, the husband says, you know what? Finally, I'll send my son. They'll listen to him. And then when the son is sent, the people say, hey, this is the heir. Let's kill him and seize the inheritance. And so what... What Paul is alluding to here in the book of Hebrews is, hey, you know how God spoke to us through the fathers by the prophets, and how all of those prophets were disrespected by um, our forefathers, the Jewish leaders. Um, hey, God sent a son also, and he was crucified, but he still spoke to us through the son. And so that that's the first point to be made: Christ is heir. And if you study Romans chapter 8, it's interesting that those who follow Christ and become sons and daughters of God become partakers of the inheritance as well. So Christ is heir, but we who follow Christ become partakers of the inheritance. And that's a beautiful message. Now notice this. It says, by whom also he made the world. So now, Christ is son... He's heir, and he's creator. So the same person who came to this world as the Son, and he died for us, and he spoke about the destruction of Jerusalem and of the end of the world, he's the same person who created this world. Now, if Paul is saying that Jesus is creator, he's indirectly making reference to Genesis 1. And if he's making reference to Genesis 1, He's saying, hey, you know, in the past, when Moses the prophet spoke to us and said, God created the world in six literal days and rested the seventh, um, this is the one, Jesus Christ, who made the world in six literal days and rested the seventh. So, Paul is validating Genesis 1, and he is showing us who created the world. <clears throat> so, Jesus is the Son. He's heir and He's creator. And in verse 3, Who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the Majesty on high. So, Jesus was the express image of of God and the brightness of the glory of God. Now when you study Exodus 3334, the glory of God is the character of God. So Jesus as the express image and the brightness of the glory of God is the express is the expression perfectly of the character of God the Father. Jesus perfectly represented God's character. And, notice this, he upholds all things by the word of his power. This is interesting. (laughs) When you understand that God is creator, how did God create? And God said, and God said, and God said, and there was, and there was. So when God spoke, it happened. That's how God is creator. And notice here it says he upholds all things by the word of his power. So if you want to tap in to the power of the creator, this is where you find it, in the word of God. And this word is so powerful that it can recreate our lives just as God created the worlds. And God is so powerful his son or jesus was so powerful that he was the express image of the father so if you want some power in your life the person who is the express image of god the father this is his word and this is where to find the power of god now notice this he upholds all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So notice this. Christ purged our sins. Where did he do that? On the cross. What did he do after he died for our sins? He sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Where's that? That's the sanctuary in heaven. So notice what we have here, the message of Christ. Christ is the Son of God who is the heir and he made the world, so he's creator. He is the express image of God's character. And within Christ is contained the power of God's word. And by the way, the word power there is the Greek word dynamis, which means dynamite. And he purged our sins because he's our Savior. He was the sacrifice. And he sat down on the right hand of the Majesty on High. He's our high priest. So Jesus is the Son, who is the heir, who is the Creator who is the express image of God's character, who has all the power of God's word within him, and he died for our sins as our sacrifice, which makes him our savior, and he is in the heavenly sanctuary as our high priest. And in a nutshell, that is the message of the book of Hebrews. And the rest of the book of Hebrews is going to expand on who Jesus Christ is. And the rest of this book is going to show us, hey, Jesus really is God. So you better listen to him. And Hebrews chapter 2 is going to say, hey, you know what? He actually came in flesh and blood and in all things was made like to his brethren so that he can be our high priest. And, and then it just goes on from there throughout the rest of the book. <clears throat> so let's continue in verses... Four and five. Can I have a volunteer to read Hebrews chapter one verses four and five? Right right over there. Back here. Having become having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance, obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Okay. Now, one of the things that you'll see in the book of Hebrews is that there is a comparison of something better throughout the book. In Hebrews chapter 1, Christ is better than the angels. And why is he better than the angels? Because by inheritance, he is the heir, he is the son. He's obtained a more excellent name than the angels. Now here's the interesting thing. Again, you go back to Romans 8. We can be partakers of this inheritance. That's amazing. So he has obtained a more excellent name than the angels. He is the Son of God. And in verse 5, For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And I'll read verse 6 just to complete this thought. And again when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. Now, in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5, we see that the father says, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Now we say, well that's, Fine, you know, we know in John 3.16 that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. And he, here we say, here we see that Jesus is begotten, but specifically in verse 6, it says He is the first begotten of the Father. Is there a difference between being the only begotten Son of God and the first begotten? And the answer, obviously, is yes. If you're the only begotten Son of God, that means you are the one and only. That means that your father had one son, and that's it, forever. But if you're the first begotten Son of God, that could mean that there are more sons and daughters after the first begotten. And again, if you go back to Romans 8, where we see that we can become the sons of God... And the daughters and that we are partakers of the inheritance what that tells us is that jesus is the first begotten and that we can become second third fourth and fifth begotten now the question is when did jesus become the first begotten in hebrews 1 verse 5 it says thou art my son this day have i begotten thee if you go to acts chapter 13 verse 33 um, in the interest of time i'll just tell you what it says In the context of the day that Christ was resurrected from the dead is the day that the Father said, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. So Jesus became the first begotten on the day of his resurrection. And when he was resurrected, it made it possible, because he died first and then was resurrected, that those of us who through faith accept him as our Savior, that we become sons and daughters of God. And we become second, third, fourth, fifth on, you know, as many as possible, begotten sons and daughters of God. And because of that, God says, let all the angels of God worship Him. And verse 7, and of the angels He saith, who maketh His angels spirits, and His ministers a flame of fire. And then verse 8, here's one of the key points. But under the sun He saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Now, this is probably where we are going to um, end things today, and we'll pick up the rest of chapter 1 and go into chapter 2 next week. Notice that in... Hebrews 1 verse 3, it says, Christ purged our sins and then he is now, sat, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. In Hebrews 8 verse 1, it says, he sat down on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. So Jesus, when he's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, he is serving as our high priest and that's at the throne of God. Now, what are the principles of, the th- of his throne or of his kingdom? A king will sit on his throne. What are the principles of the kingdom upon the throne which Christ sits? The principles are righteousness. So the principles of Christ's kingdom, or the key principle of Christ's kingdom, is righteousness. So what is Christ doing as our high priest seated on the throne of God? He's seated there ministering on the principle of righteousness. And what gives him the right to minister on the authority or on the principle of righteousness? Verse 9 says, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. When did Christ love righteousness and hate iniquity? Primarily in his life here on this earth. And because Christ lived here on this earth, loving righteousness and hating iniquity, that gave him the right to sit on the throne of God with the principle of righteousness being the principle of his kingdom. And it's interesting, to the Laodicean church, Christ says, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame. So how did Christ overcome? He loved righteousness and hated iniquity. And that's the principle of his kingdom. And so you could say that the message of the book of Hebrews applies to the Laodicean church because Christ shows us how to overcome. He loves righteousness and hates iniquity. And that's something that we need to pray for. So many times we don't really like righteousness, even though we know it's the right thing to do. And we love sin. And we say, well, Lord, help me not to do it, but I really love it. But Christ is saying, overcome as I overcame love righteousness hate iniquity that's the principle teachers of thank God's you for kingdom. wrapping things up we're going to continue our study of the book of Hebrews starting next week we'll finish chapter 1 and move on into chapter 2